if you go to baseball, because <laughs> I was talking about home runs for a second, and you look up the person who has the most wins in all of baseball, it's a, it's a guy named Cy Young, right? That's, that's the pitching award that they have, Cy Young award. But if you look up who has the most losses, it's also Cy Young. Okay. If you look up who has the most strikeouts, you're like, oh wow, it's Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan from the Texas Rangers. You know, he, he has the most strikeouts. If you look up who has the most walks, it's, it's Nolan Ryan. I mean, my point is literally, it can often be the number of at bats that can be the winning game, not literally how many home runs you hit, but how many at bats you take. Remember, my blog was called One Thousand Awesome Things, right? I wrote a thousand. You know how many entries are in the book of awesome? The book you mentioned that, you know, took off, sold a million copies, was bestseller for 200 straight weeks. 200, 200. Literally, we curated away four out of every five things I wrote to make the book. Welcome to the Thought Leader Revolution with Nikki Ballou. Join the revolution. There's never been a better time in history to speak your truth, find your freedom, and make your fortune. Each week, we interview the world's top thought leaders and learn the secrets of how they built a six to seven figure practice. This episode has been brought to you by eCircleAcademy.com, the proven system to add six to seven figures a year to your thought leader practice. Welcome to another exciting episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. I'm your host, Nikki Ballou. And boy, do we have an amazing guest lined up for you today. I had the privilege of meeting this gentleman at a very high-level mastermind program called the Titan Summit way back in December of 2015. Robin Sharma puts on this event. And It brings out some of the world's top thought leaders as speakers, and the mastermind includes some of the world's top business people as attendees. I am speaking, of course, of none other than the one, the only, the legendary author of the Book of Awesome, Neil Pastrico. Welcome to the show, Neil. (laughs) Thanks so much for having me, Nikki. It's a pleasure and honor to have you here, my friend. You know, I've really enjoyed your books. I really enjoyed meeting you and uh, learning from you at the Titan Summit. The people that are listening to this podcast, they tend to be thought leaders and aspiring thought leaders. They're coaches, they're consultants. They're interested in having a bigger impact in the world. They're interested in increasing their income. They're interested in making a difference. They want to learn from you. So the question I have for you is a simple one. How'd you get to be the great Neil Pastrika? Tell us your backstory. Sure, Nikki. I'm happy to. I'll try to give you the short version and let you poke and prod wherever you want me to expand, okay? So back in 2008, 2009, I was going through a really tough time in my life. While working my full-time job at Walmart, uh, my personal life was really kind of hitting the shambles. Uh, So my wife told me that she no longer wanted to be married to me. At around the same time that my best friend took his own life uh, via suicide. And so in the throes of that hell happening, I decided to start a blog, like just as a way to clear my head at night. And so the blog was called 1000awesomethings.com. And I decided, I pledged for 1000 straight days to write a little essay about some small joy that cheered me up, like flipping to the cold side of the pillow in the middle of the night or, or playing on all dangerous playground equipment or uh, getting called up to the dinner buffet first at a wedding 
And I'd sort of expand on these little awesome things like, you know, two, three, four, 500 word essays. And I'd publish one every single night. And so that happened outside of my day job at Walmart. And what happened was over time, and, and, and you know, there's two ways to look at the story. One is like, hey, lightning struck. The other way is like, you know, this is probably my 16th blog in my life. I'd always kind of put my words and my thoughts somewhere else uh, when I was going through something challenging. And this one just took off. And, you know, it hit a lot of people. It hit a few trigger points that you, maybe your listeners will be more interested in than the average listener. You know, it hit uh, FARC.com, F-A-R-K.com, a social media website. Then it hit, you know, Reddit.com and Dig.com. And every time it got a spike, I'd see 50,000 people come visit the website. And then I'd see 2,000 more people sort of linger as sort of daily visitors. Eventually, the website grew, hit a few million people, and won an award called the Webby Award. Um, so there's this group that most people have never heard of, including me, called the International Academy of Digital Arts and Sciences. And every year they award kind of the best website awards. So I got flown to New York. I ended up winning the award for best blog. And that's when I attracted the attention of publishers. They don't actually, like part of their job, and I shouldn't say publishers, I should say literary agents. Part of a literary agent's job is to scour the world for talent but because they're so buried in submissions from everybody from around the world, like they have what they call slush piles or huge piles of submissions, which as a side note, I highly recommend the website agentquery.com. Uh, we can talk more about how to find a good literary agent later if you'd like. But they're so, buried, they're so buried in slush that they have very little time to actually be on the offensive and to be on the sort of the hunt for talent. And so while you may think that putting a really, really funny and clever YouTube video online that attracts millions of hits or a blog that attracts millions of hits could get their attention, actually, no, you need to actually soak up into their purview by getting into something that they're already looking at, like who won a Webby Award today or, you know, what was selected as, as the top 10 YouTube videos of the year or, or, you know what I mean, something that sort of is a more curated sample set that is easier for them to see. Why do I make that point? Because 10 literary agents came at me over the next couple of weeks. And remember, my website was already a hit. Like I had millions of views. I'd been working on it every single day. Uh, I'm like maybe a year into it now. So I already thought it was a super cool website and so did lots of people. But it wasn't until the Webby Award hit that all these literary agents came out of the woodwork, right? So then I picked a literary agent and that's, that turned into the Book of Awesome, which essentially is just my blog printed out and stapled together. <laughs> that was the first of what turned into five books. Um, most recently, a book called The Happiness Equation, which began as a love letter to my unborn child after I got remarried. And my wife, Leslie, told me she was pregnant. So I'm, I'm compressing about 10 years of my personal story into, into a few minutes. But if you follow along, I gave a detailed overview of the sort of trigger point, the flash point, the interest point maybe for your listeners, and then more like a quick summary of where I am today. Today I've got five books written and I'm doing other things such as a podcast all about books and a lot of speeches because nobody wants, as you know from the Titan Summit, nobody wants to read a book, they want the movie version on the stage. That's so true. That's an incredible story. There, there's a lot to unpack there, but let's start with something you said that I think is very profound. Okay. You took adversity in your life 
And instead of rolling up into a ball and saying, oh my God, my life is over. Let me eat bonbons. Let me distract myself with social media. You decided to do something positive with it. You took that adversity. You took the lemons that life gave you and you made lemonade. You started writing this blog. This blog was something that initially was to help you cope with the adversity. But eventually it became something that gave hope and inspiration to thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands, and then millions. That's powerful. That's impact, right? You were authentically you. You weren't trying to invent yourself to be something you weren't. And I believe, Neil, with all my heart, that the world today is hungering for authenticity. People today want to be told the truth. They want to hear from real people who have real answers to problems that they're encountering. And that's one thing that you embody. And I believe that's a big reason for your success. What do you have to say about that? Well, I appreciate you commenting on it that way. I will say that from a distance, it may look like I did this incredible pivot. I I had in the depths of despair, while after losing a friend, losing a marriage, losing my home, uh, finding a new place to live, living alone for my for the first time, I turned to a blog and, and sort of like a, a phoenix rose from the ashes. All I'd like to point out is that buried within that story, uh, and when you zoom closer, I did eat bonbons. To continue your married with children reference, <laughs> and I did eat like I poutines at late late, late at night and, and sort of like fall into traps that weren't healthy. I lost a lot of weight and people at work were always like, what's your secret? You look great. And I was like, no food and no sleep. You know, like I, I, was, <laughs> I, was, I was stressed and I was lonely. And part of the reason I started that blog was to put myself in a good mood. Thank you so much for observing that. But also it was probably because I had nothing else to do. I mean, I literally had nothing else to do. I'd living in a city, Toronto, where I didn't know anyone. I had three contacts on my phone. I'm not kidding. I didn't know anyone. I never lived downtown. I never lived in a big city before. I lived, I grew up in the suburbs. Um, I lost my wife and I lost my best friend. So those are the two people I talk to most often. And so there's a combination. I just want to point that out because I wanted to make it a little bit more accessible uh, for anyone listening. It's like, yeah, that happened for sure. But it also was partly, there was a nice sprinkling of, you know what, when I got home from work at 5 p.m. and I would go to bed at midnight, I had seven sort of dead hours a night where I was just not conscripted into anything else for a moment. And as my life warmed up and turned around, I think from me, from my standpoint, an additional challenge I had to, to the one you pointed out is that I had to keep making my blog and my writing a priority now in the face of new friendships, new relationships, promotions at work. And that became more difficult. That became a real stressing point because I was like, well, how do I prioritize writing this blog? Which by the way, has no ads, has no overt revenue stream. How do I prioritize this blog? in the face of uh, dating a girl who I love. And that's where it made sense because the girl was like, you love writing, this blog never stopped. You know, that was Leslie, she, was, she, she encouraged me. So part of it's a situation of a choice, like you mentioned. There's part of a, a dose of luck and timing. And part of it's like maintaining the thing you love doing in the face of not new pressures, but new opportunities and other things that may distract you. That's incredible. You know, I appreciate you talking about how it wasn't all sunshine, lollipops, and roses. It was nah. bonbons <laughs> and dead air time <laughs> and trying to figure out how to get out of what, maybe this is the wrong word to use, maybe it's not, 
what was probably at least a little bit depressing for you. Oh yeah, totally. I had, I was opposed to therapy and suddenly I'm seeing a therapist twice a week, you know, and, and, and really loving it. And that was really uh, helpful. And, and I highly recommend it to anybody. And by the way, all these blog posts, I just mentioned, you know, old dangerous playground equipment and, uh, getting called up to the dinner buffet at a wedding. Uh, those were the hits, but I also had lots of, uh, misses. Like I also had lots of blog posts that sucked you know what I mean? Mixed into the good ones. And then when you get the book deal, of course, they only want the good ones. So I got lots of posts on my blog. If you want to go to 1000awesomethings.com, you'll find lots of duds because you don't have to have all gold. You don't have to hit all home runs. You just have to keep taking swings. And if you, and by the way, I, I want to expand on that metaphor because I think it's important. If you go to baseball, because <laughs> I was talking about home runs for a second, and you look up the person who has the most wins in all of baseball, it's a, it's a guy named Cy Young, right? That's, that's the pitching award that they have, Cy Young Award. But if you look up who has the most losses, it's also Cy Young, okay? If you look up who has the most strikeouts, you're like, oh, wow, it's Nolan Ryan. Nolan Ryan from the Texas Rangers, you know, he, he has the most strikeouts. If you look up who has the most walks, it's, it's Nolan Ryan. I mean, my point is, literally, it can often be the number of at-bats. That can be the winning game, not literally how many home runs you hit by how many bats you take. Remember my blog was called 1,000 Awesome Things, right? I wrote 1,000. You know how many entries are in the Book of Awesome? The book you mentioned that you know took off, sold a million copies, was bestseller for 200 straight weeks? 200, 200. Literally, we curated away four out of every five things I wrote to make the book. That's incredible, but it makes sense, right? You wanna, you wanna put your best foot forward. And Seth Godin said to me, artists ship. You know what I mean? Artists yeah. get out there, create work, and they ship it. They're out there, they're putting it out there, testing the work all the time. And the same is true for thought leaders. Thought leaders are constantly testing their ideas. So one of my mentors is a man named Peter Cook. He, he and Matt Church created Thought Leaders Global in Australia. And what they say is that anyone who has lived a little bit of life can go from pretty much starting out to becoming a thought leader, earning a million dollars a year, or between a half a million and two and a half million dollars a year over an 18-month to three-year period. And all they have to be willing to do is create at least 12 what they call clusters. And these clusters are basically areas of thought leadership that have been theoretically commercialized. If you create 12 clusters, you're actually expected to have six of them fail miserably. Mm. Only mm -hmm. six of them are supposed to succeed. And I can tell you that with, we've licensed some of their work here in, in our company, eCircle Academy. And I have people that are earning a million dollars a year out of our program from nothing. And I believe that's the hardest thing to do in business, to go from having no money to making a million dollars. That's the hardest thing to do in business. These folks have done it with one, maybe two clusters. They've had seven or eight failures. So you're absolutely right. It doesn't matter how many times you fail, it matters how many at-bats you take because the times that you actually swing and you connect, those connections are going to give you some big home runs, maybe even grand slams. Exactly. And sometimes, you know, Seth Godin has had lots of home runs, right? I mean, he's had purple cloud. One or two, yeah. Had, <laughs> right, right, right. And, and look, my blog post I mentioned to you in the early days, like 20 posts 
goes in, one of them hit Farb.com. So what I was getting like no hits, zero hits. And then a month into my blog, I got 50,000. The question to ask the Seth Godin's of the world is, would you have kept going? Like how many at bats do you get to take before you have to you get one hit? And, and to me, that's the million dollar question because I encourage my little cousin to keep posting YouTube videos. He wants to be a YouTuber. I'm like, just keep posting, just keep posting. And then six months in, he said to me, Neil, none of my YouTube, I did exactly what you told me, Neil, but not a single one of my YouTube videos ever got more than like 100 hits, say, or 100 views. So he's like, I quit. And that to me is a question I always wonder about myself. I'm like, if that very first blog post or, you know, didn't go viral in the first month, I wonder if I would have kept going. Because I know there's lots of times where I felt like quitting. And there's lots, certainly lots of blogs that I quit before this one. But a question that'd be fun to explore, and I don't know if we can do it, is, you know, at what point do you need to see a little sniff of success? What, what can be the, the smell on the barbecue that motivates you to, to keep going? Like, how do you... How do you get that? And I don't know the answer. I'm not trying to pin you on this. I, I literally just wonder about myself and Seth and people like that, you know, saying it might be easier in the rear of your mirror to say, keep going. But I also think, you know, as Chris Gillibo would say, I know he's another one of your guests. He also says, if at first you don't succeed, quit. Yeah, he does. <laughs> I know. That, was, that, was, that shocked me when he said that. But yeah. Yeah, exactly. And his point is that, what if it's not, like, can we zoom out a little bit? What if it's not number of blog posts to get the first one to go? What if it's number of blogs, right? What if it's not number of blogs? What if it's number of uh, strategic projects? And now we get into the world of the black swan, right? Now we get into the world of Nassim Taleb who says, hey, if you're going to spin the roulette wheel at the casino, put one chip on every single number. You're guaranteed to win. And the question is, which winning spin can you get? so that you can follow one of the black swans you create. For me, 1000awesomethings.com was a total black swan. It came about partly because I tried 16 blogs before and partly because I had some time and space and luck. The question I'm asking myself now, here I am 10 years later, I've had some success behind me. The question is, how do I make my life ripe for more black swans in the future? How do I avoid the unfortunate brittleness that sometimes can be created from success? where you get used to and accustomed to one thing working and you ride that pony into the ground. I'm interested in how do we expand ourselves so that we can find new success and new avenues um, after we've achieved something. I'll I'll tell you, this question has never been posed in quite this way. But as you're posing it, three thoughts come to mind. One is longevity. You need to keep going. One of my guests is an Olympic gold medalist from Toronto. His name is Mark McCoy. I don't know if you remember Mark McCoy, but um, he won uh, the 110 meter hurdles gold medal in 1992. It took him 16 years and four Olympics to win an Olympic gold medal. You know, that's a long time. Yes, that's, it is. That's commitment. You know, it is. he was on he was uh, in the Olympic final twice before. He missed being on the podium by five hundredths of a second once. Can you imagine that? Five hundredths of a second away from a medal? Can you just imagine how that must have felt? You know, and he just kept going. He kept running. He thought, hey, this, you know, I got to do something different. I got to try something new. So longevity is a part of it. It's important to have that. The second thing that comes to mind for me is that You've got to listen to that voice within. 
It doesn't matter what other people have to say. But if that voice within is telling you this is what you're supposed to be doing with your life, then if, if you quit on that voice, you're, you're quitting on your soul, you know. So I think it's important to understand what that voice within is trying to tell you. Mm -hmm. Now, this next point I'm going to make will seem like it's contradicting the previous point. First of all, kudos for remembering three points. That's amazing. Thank okay. you. <laughs> well, you know, I, I, do, I, I, I do a lot of these interviews. Yeah, I, I do a lot of these interviews. After the first two, I'm like, I forget the third one. So yeah. you, you're, you're a wiser man than me. So what's the third point? The, the third point, the contradictory one, is you got to listen to the marketplace. If the marketplace is telling you you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, you're wrong, then you got to pay attention to that. And you got you to gotta find a different way of bringing your message to the marketplace. And this is what I like about what Seth Godin had to say, that artists ship. is You got to ship something and you got to bill for it. Because if no one's willing to pay for what you have to say, then it's not worth anything. Totally. It's not worth you it. You know what? This is interesting because, so now, flash forward 10 years, I have a, a publishing business, right? Like I, I write books, I sell yep. them, and I publish them. I've got five books published and a couple more coming, right? And I have a speaking business, as we talked about from the beginning. Yep. Uh, people want the movie, not the book. So I'm talking to you today from Toronto. I just flew in last night from New Jersey where I gave a speech to a, a pharmaceutical company uh, yesterday because they're trying to, they're going through a lot of change and they really want to see how they can unpack some of this happiness work I've been doing and use in the organization. So I have a speaking business. And then you know, what, you know what happened to me, Nikki, is hmm. this is really related to the three points you just made. I ended up reading this essay last year. It's called The Nature of the Fun by David Foster Wallace. So maybe you can turn in the show notes. I know brain, brainpickings.org has a nice summary of it. So David sure. Foster Wallace, for those that don't know, is unfortunately now, now deceased via suicide. But he was you know, a MacArthur Fellowship kind of genius recipient uh, who wrote the famous... Uh, fictional tome that is Infinite Jest, right? He wrote this big, huge book called Infinite Jest. But he wrote these nonfiction essays as well. They're very powerful. And what the nature of the fun argues is that after you've had success, you're looking for something new, you inevitably follow your old success. So, you know, a real estate agent who's having some success will move to bigger houses or move to commercial. Uh, a band that has success will follow the same tune to sell their second album, right? Uh, but the problem is, when you start losing the marketplace, to your point number three, when, you, when the marketplace is telling you that's not working anymore, you have to remember that the thing that started you in the first place was actually fun. You weren't selling anything. You were following what was fun. And you have to go back to that second point you made, Nikki, the inner voice, and find what is simply genuinely fun for you mm. again. Right? So, yeah, for me, it's 2018 as we're talking. I looked at my life uh, early this year and I was like, everything I do is for money. But when I started my blog, it wasn't for money. It was just for fun and it had no ads. So I started up a podcast called Three Books, no ads, no commercials, no sponsors, just as a way for me to have fun again. And all I do is talk to people and say, hey, what were the three books that shaped your life? That's it. I talked to David Sedaris, talked to Judy Bloom, I talked to Chris Anderson, talked to Mitch Album. What do I do? I just ask them, why do I do that? Why do I read their book? Because it's fun. And I don't, I have to make sure in my life, that I always have one project that's just for me because it is the fuel that lights all the other projects. Okay. So listen, I, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to shamelessly plug for myself for here, but I read about 80 to 100 books a year. You've got to put me on your show. I want to talk about three books that have impacted me that I think are amazing. Oh my God. What a great idea for a podcast. I read okay. your emails about the three books. You send those out. I mean, I'm on your list. It's there and they're fabulous. 
Yeah, you know, and I'm trying something new because you know what I, you know what I realized I did with the thousand awesome things, which really helped me because I called that website one thousand awesome things, and what your listeners may have heard is that oh, well, sorry, what they didn't hear because I didn't say it is that I made it a countdown, right? So it was like number one thousand, number nine ninety nine. So I had to keep going, otherwise I would never hit number one. It gave me a, a goal, it gave me a deadline. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Right? So similarly with this book, this podcast, I was actually going to call it one thousand books. I really called it three because it sounded, I thought, better to me. Um, but I'm trying to uncover the world's 1,000 most formative books. Okay. Let's talk about well, those for a few minutes. I, I know yeah. this is a little different than what we do. Oh, so oh. so Go ahead. tell me what are three books that to you are a must read in someone's library? Oh, okay. First of all, I already mentioned one of them, which is The Black Swan by Nassim Talish. This book really changed my life because... Uh, a black swan event, uh, for those that may not be familiar with the term, is an event that is disproportionately huge, uh, is totally unanticipated, and yet we use all kinds of biases and fallacies to explain it logically in retrospect. Mm. For example, 9-11. Okay? For example, the success of the iPhone. For example, a tsunami and nuclear meltdown in, in Japan. For example, the typical story of how I met my spouse. Right. So these are black swan events. So one of the prescriptions that the book says, and and I think of this podcast that way, is go to parties, put yourself in a situation where you're meeting more acquaintances than friends, because that's where black swan events really occur. They occur when someone's deep network and other person's deep network sort of touch each other, you know, in a surprising and interesting way. I want to buy this book book right away. (laughs) You got to read the black swan by now. I'm going to do it, man. I'm, I'm, ordering it. It. I'm ordering it when this podcast is over, in between the interviews. <laughs> it's life-changing. It's life-changing. And then, and then I'm looking at, I'm, going, I'm on threebooks.co, and I'm looking at my top 1,000 based on the, the people I've interviewed. Here's one. Uh, I interviewed uh, Chris Anderson. Okay, so you know Chris Anderson. Uh, he runs TED. Okay, and so yeah, yeah. I think of him as the world's foremost leader of, of, of global thought leaders, right? So we're talking about thought leadership today. Who, who runs the world's most, <laughs> foremost thought leadership collective? Probably him. You should probably Anderson. have him on the podcast now that you mention it. Sounds like he'd be a great guest. Uh, you got to have him on the podcast. And, um, and he's a great guest. I flew down to New York. I, I sat in his office, you know, Ted, and I said, hey, Chris, what are the books that changed your life? And a big one is actually a recent book. It came out this year. And I'm like, how did the book that came out this year change your life? He's like, I've been following this guy for 20 years. And this is actually the, the sort of like culmination of everything I've been reading from this guy. And I'm like, what's the book? What's the book? And so the book is called Enlightenment Now by Steven Pinker. And it's essentially the cover blur, by the way. I don't know if you read like blurbs on top of um, books, but, yeah, but the cover book, the cover, the cover blurb is from Bill Gates. And, and the blurb says, I'm going to read it to you. It says, wait till you hear this. Oh, here it is. It's my favorite book of all time by wow. Bill Gates. Okay, so it's like you can't get a better blurb than that. No. And really what this book does is, you know how we live in a world today that, that, that everyone feels is like going into the garbage can? Like, you know, it's like everything in the news and everything on TV is like all negative. Well, this guy proves with incredible research and stats and facts that actually everything's really good. It's the best it's and ever been. It's the best it's ever been. It's He's never, absolutely it's never, right. He's absolutely right. I mean, if you study today, the the U.S. Bureau of Labor Statistics, like I've been I've been following their numbers, right? And uh, confidence in the U.S. This is just I just read this this morning. 
unemployment in the United States for minorities is the lowest in history. In yeah. history. I'm a minority. I'm from Iran, right? Like, that's good news for people like me. <laughs> you know what I mean? And yeah. on top of that, retail confidence is through the roof. Manufacturing is booming. You know how like five years ago you were hearing from everybody manufacturing in North America is dead. It'll never come back, blah, blah, blah. They yeah. say manufacturing in North America right now is booming. It's like the way it was in the 70s and early 80s. Can you imagine that? Mm -hmm. and, and more, there are almost 10 million millionaires in North America. Does that not blow you away? 10 million millionaires. 10 million, almost, not quite. I think it's in the eight range, but it's heading up to 10 million millionaires. Neil, like in 1980, there were less than 500,000. Yeah. This is the best time to be in business yeah. in the history of the world. Yeah. yeah. That's why so they turn off the news. The news is exactly. like, the news, the news is awful. Just get I don't rid of watch. it. Yeah. I canceled my New York Times uh, subscription, Sunday New York Times, and I canceled all five of my magazine subscriptions. And I'm like you. I read it. I, I just channel all that brain space into books. You know, I, I literally, I wrote an article for Harvard Business Review last year. Maybe we can throw in the show notes. It's called Eight Ways to Read a Lot More Books. And if any of your listeners are thinking, uh, like what you're saying, like everything's really good. You, you got to send me, you got to send me the link to that article, man. I, yeah, I'm going to read it myself today. Oh my God. You, yeah. Eight ways to read. It turned out, it ended up becoming like one of their most popular articles. And uh, it's not because of me. It's because everyone wants to read more books, right? Like it's like the headline was like got people interested. So yeah, I'll send it, I'll send it to you um, right after the show. But, but the point is uh, that you're making as well is that like, you know what, we got to turn off the news. What enlightenment now is to turn off the news Focus on how good things are. And then you asked me for three. Well, the last, the last book I'll give you is whatever your favorite fiction book is, okay? Because there's new research that's coming out of fiction. You know, people like you and me, we're naturally bent, I, I'm guessing, to, to look at nonfiction. We're like, I want to learn something. I want to like use something to comply, blah, blah, blah. But you know what? You know what we're failing to do when we only read nonfiction? We're failing to actually trigger all the mirror neurons in our brain that actually open up empathy, compassion, you know, listening skills, living another life. And yeah. um, the research is coming out from, from the annual review of psychology saying only fiction can give you those growth. And I know you had Jordan Harbinger on, he's talking about soft skills. Well, there's no better way to build soft skills than to read fiction. I agree okay. with you. And, I agree with you. I actually got into an argument with Robin Sharma about it because he said he never reads fiction. And I said, at least half the books I read are fiction and have to be fiction. I mean, it's amazing, right? So I'm reading Big Shiny Morning right now, which is James Frey's book all about Los Angeles. He wrote a million little pieces. I love yeah, yeah. anything by David Mitchell. I love anything by Dave Eggers or Mohsen Hamid. You know, uh, there's so much out there in the world there of fiction. There is, brother. There and is. Oh, my the God. Way to, the way to trip your brain, if you're like, well, it's not, it's a waste of time, like, like Robin is saying, is, is just saying, no, no. The biggest and most important leadership skills I can have in my life are actually empathy compassion, listening, and, and there's no better way to grow them than by doing what the Game of Thrones writer, George R. R. Martin says, oh. and that is, a reader lives a thousand lives before he dies, a man who never reads lives only one. That's the truth. So well said. Oh my God, I gotta get this guy on the podcast too. I love the Game of Thrones. I've I normally read more than I watch television, but I, I I started I got hooked on the Game of Thrones because a friend of mine said, "No, you really gotta watch it. And you're gonna love it." And then I bought every episode that's ever been made, and it's great. And I bought all the books too. I haven't started to get into the books yet, but he's bang on. Okay, so I could talk about books all day long. I love books. I live for books. Um, I'll tell you three books that have had an impact on Please. me. Please. I love to hear. So 
fiction is 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 featured in the in this list. Number one, Atlas Shrugged by Ayn Rand. Mm. I read that book when I was twenty years old. I was in university. Three books. Yeah, uh, and uh, uh, I don't know if you've read Atlas Shrugged, but yes, I have. At the time, it seemed to articulate for me what I couldn't articulate for myself about the importance of marching to the tune of my own drummer, the importance of living my life based on that inner voice within, and the importance of not imposing what I thought was right on other people through force, you know? Mm -hmm. And here's here's what will blow you away, because when I think about it now, it blows me away. I, I still don't know how I did it, but I read that book in a week. I had a major paper due for a uh, poli-sci class I was taking at the University of Toronto. I slept two hours that whole week. I, I wrote the paper and I read the book. That's all I did. And then I would eat and drink, you know, when I remembered to. And I finished that book in a week with two hours sleep. It was incredible. That book had such an impact on me. It, it turned me into an entrepreneur. It was the book that made me curious about philosophy, politics, governing styles. It was a seminal book in my life. And in fact, because I read that, I read, uh, I read The Fountainhead before that book, but I started to read all of Ayn Rand's other books, both her fiction and her nonfiction books. And I, I think she is a brilliant thinker. Um, and what she brought to the world in terms of the power of the individual and the power of the individual thinking through what is their gift, what is their journey, where should they be putting their focus on was very powerful for me. So mm-hmm. Atlas Shrugged made a massive, massive, massive difference in my life. Okay. So a second book, also fiction, that had a big impact on me, I read when I was 10, 11 years old. And it's called The Eagle Has Landed. It's by Jack Higgins. It was, mm, one of the, it was one of the first big successful thrillers, okay? At the time, it sold something like 10, 15 million copies. It was a huge bestseller. And it was the story of a German officer who was anti-Nazi and was sent to England to try and assassinate Winston Churchill, okay? And obviously, he failed, right? And all that good stuff. But what I got from this book was the importance of living according to a code of, and how important this was for me especially, for every human being, but especially for men. You know what I mean? As a man, you got to have a code that you live by. And mm-hmm. to me, the main character in this book, Colonel Kurt Steiner, was a man who lived by, he was the guy who was supposed to kill Churchill, right? The man who essentially, yeah. his leadership was critical to saving the free world. Right, And yet he had so much empathy and sympathy for Churchill. He admired Churchill in, in this book more than he admired the leaders of his own country. And, and, and they stopped him. He, he wasn't able to do it, right, at the, at the end of the day. But the way that he carried himself and comported himself in that book, even though, you know, we were against the Nazis and all that, I kind of like was finding myself wanting him to succeed, not in killing Churchill, but succeed because a man of this character, a man who lived his life this way is the kind of guy you'd want to see win. Do you know what I mean? And, And that book, I read that book when I was 11 years old. I haven't read it in about 
25 years or so right now, but I think I read it something like 15, 20 times. Like that was how powerful that book was for me. And it's a thriller, you know? At the time, it was a groundbreaking thriller. Now there's a lot of books like it, but that was a very powerful book for me. Okay, so I, I'm giving you fiction deliberately because I can give you another list of three, completely nonfiction. But the, the other book on my, on my list is The Hunt for Red October by Tom Clancy. Mm, wow. So why this book made a, a big impression on me was because the characters in this book, the, on the American side in particular, were, they were all basically a pastiche of America. Kids of immigrants, you know, people who were from different backgrounds, people who all came together for this idea that was America, a country that I admire a great deal, a country that's about freedom, a country that's about allowing the individual the right to, to chart their own destiny and their own course. You know, the, the, the story, I'm, I, I don't know if you, you I'm sure, you, have you read the book? Have you, did you see the movie? Uh, I've seen the movie. You've seen the movie. So the book is, yeah. it, it, it's, you know, it's far more rich than, everyone than wants the, movies. the movie. Yeah, everyone wants the movie. Yeah, you're right. But the book is far more rich than the movie. This book made me cry so many times because the main characters in this book were fighting for, for right and good and honor. And those types of themes have always had a huge impact on me. And I became a massive Tom Clancy fan after that, and I bought every book he ever wrote until the time he passed away and all that good stuff. But um, these were three books that had a seminal impact on me from the fiction side of things. And fiction opens up the soul to me. If you don't read fiction, you're closing off your soul. I, I believe that very strongly. How do you make space for reading? You know, brother, it's a priority for me. I just, every day I do, I get up in the morning. This morning, I-, I so You read 80 to, 80 to 100 books a year. So I do. How do you fit that in? I, I just make it a priority. Most people read three. So how You're do you, right. What are you doing differently? In the morning when I wake up, the first thing I do is I read. Really? Yep. Okay. That's, that's different than most people. Most people's morning routine. Most people are like, got to run down, get my shake, got all these ingredients. I got to no, maybe do exercise. You're like, you pick up a book. I pick up a book. I, I lay in bed and I read for half an hour to an hour. And if I get up early enough, sometimes two hours. Hmm, nice. And then I go work out <laughs> after that. My brain's awake. Then my body becomes awake. In a way. So last night I didn't get a lot of sleep, right? I, I, I got to bed late. I was out with uh, my son. I have a 10-year-old son uh, and a 12-year-old. My 12-year-old's my away at camp. My 10-year-old's with me, and he went to see a good friend of mine who's kind of his, his auntie Linda. Um, she was, she's been friends with me for 15 years. She was a mentor of mine. She was a classroom leader at Landmark Education. I did Landmark. Great program. And anyway, she's a wonderful lady. So we went to see a movie, the three of us. We hung out, got home late. You know, he's, he's a kid, he's excited, he's been out, so he couldn't fall asleep, and he came to me like three, four times in the middle of the night, daddy, daddy, daddy. So by the time I got to sleep, it was like two in the morning, and I had a 6 a.m. workout with uh, my trainer. Anyways, I got up at five, and I read till 5.40, and then I quickly threw on my gym gear and ran out the door. That was my morning today. You know, and, and, and it was really, really great to do that, but that's how I do it. And make it a priority. You know, if I haven't uh, had a chance to read as much as I want to for a couple days, uh, I'll just cancel whatever the heck I'm doing and I'll pick up a book and I'll sit down and read. That's amazing. It's a, I think making it a priority is a big deal. And 
And, you know, I always think, I always do the, the sort of um, the deathbed test. Would you rather be on your deathbed and look back at a pile of old newspapers that you read over the last 20, 30 years, or would you rather look at a, a beautiful bookshelf full of all these books that you've, 100%. you know, that you've read? I mean, it's just so, when people say that, they're, they're always like, oh, I'd rather have, have a bookshelf. And it's like, but you have to cancel the newspaper. You have to get rid of the newspapers and the magazines and the other things. You, you, you really, really do. You really, really do. Anyways, so these are my thoughts on, on, uh, on books. So I, I could talk about books all day. I, I really could. It's just one of my favorite topics in the world. So let's move back on to, to thought leadership. So Neil, I created a little bit of uh, intellectual property with a friend of mine who used to actually be the, the co-host of the show. His name's Michael Palmer around what we call the thought leader's business journey. And let me just briefly walk you through it. I'd like to get your comments. So we say that there are five stages to the thought leader's business journey. Stage one is that of the newcomer. So that's someone who's just getting into business, just getting into the arena and wanting to share their expertise and their love. They're excited, but they may not really be super clear on what they're doing or why. They're probably not making a lot of money. They may be making no money. This is an exciting stage for people, but it also can be a dangerous stage because over 80% of the people that get started in business never get past this. It only becomes a hobby for them. The second stage, which you know, 20% of the people who start get to, is what we call the unconscious expert. These are people who they have some expertise, and there's people out there who value that expertise, but it's hard for them to articulate what that expertise really is, how it helps people. They've just got so much passion around it that there's people that are attracted to that passion. So people in this stage tend to make somewhere between thirty dollars and $70,000 a year, and uh, they don't really have marketing and sales efforts that work and are consistent. It's hit and miss. And of the, 50, the 20% that get to here, 15%, so three out of four stay here. 5% of the people that start move to the third stage, which we call the conscious expert. This is where people have their expertise, their messaging dialed in. People understand their value and people are doing business with them. Their marketing and their sales efforts work, but they're trading time for money, so they're burning out, right? And of the 5% of people who start who get to this, 4% never get out of this stage. So they stay here and they never get to the next stage. And that final, not the, the second to last stage is what we call the thought leader stage. This is where you've arrived. This is where you have expertise. The marketplace understands it. You're not trading time for money. You get to do the things you love. You get to have a huge impact. You get to make a great income. And of the 1% that get here to the thought leader stage, these are the folks that make somewhere between a half a million to 2 million, 3 million a year. Only one one-hundredth of a percent, or maybe even one, yeah, about that figure, get to go to that final stage, which we call celebrity thought leader. This is where you're really known. The marketplace knows you. This is where there's folks like yourself, folks like Robin Sharma, folks like Tony Robbins get to play. This is where you get to make a lot of money. You make money in the millions and maybe even the tens of millions or the hundreds of millions. You get to have an impact in the millions. People call upon you who are captains of industry, leaders of countries, leaders of major organizations. And this is the stage where people really, really get to fulfill themselves at the highest levels. And again, very few people get to here. This is basically some IP that 
I developed, again with my friend Michael Palmer, around describing the stages of the thought leader's business journey. What do you think of this? Does this resonate for you? Does this make sense? Yeah, I mean, I, 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 that question I can answer. I think, yeah, it's beautiful. It's a really nice articulation. And uh, I like that you have it as a journey because that helps people who are working towards developing thought leadership understand where they are, which I think typically is the hardest thing. You have no idea if you're, you know, kind of doing well or, or on the right path or, or where you are. And so this is a really nice, uh, almost like flashlight in, in the dark and twisted underground maze that typically is where most of us are stumbling around in. Brilliant, brilliant, brilliant. Awesome. Neil, I've really enjoyed this conversation. I'd love to have you back on the show. Please come back anytime and we can, we can talk about more books. I think that'd be, that'd be a lot of fun. But we like to wrap up every show by asking our guest expert, what are your top three expert action steps that you recommend our listener take on so that he or she can enhance their business and enhance their life? What say you? Well, let's keep them consistent to what we talked about today. So number one, I'd say number one is cancel your magazine and newspaper subscriptions and include your digital New York Times subscriptions. Yes, it's painful only having 10 articles a month, but believe me, like I do, when you hit your 10 article a month cap, then you just literally have no New York Times for the month. So just cancel. Like number one, cancel all your magazine and newspaper subscriptions. That is a superficial way of looking at the world. It is much too short term to accomplish anything long term. Okay. Number two, you need to have a regular pattern of reading. Okay. The reason I started the three books podcast is because I was hoping uh, to continue my own pattern and I was worried that I would slip out of it. But now that I have to interview people, I have to read their three books in advance. And so what is your pattern and how do you maintain it? You, you wake up, you, you put, you actually cancel meetings and you, and you read for half an hour to two hours every morning. How can the system of reading be implemented into your life? Not the reading, because we're going to slip on that one, but, but what's the system? And so here's my current system. I'll just share it with you. My wife and I go to bed together. And then uh, after she falls asleep, I literally pull out, <laughs> and she kind of laughs about this, but I pull out like a camping headlamp that I wear around my head. Nice. And I made sure it has red light. You want, you want one that has red light because it's a lot better on your eyes than the white light. And I read for probably an hour or two at night before I fall asleep. So I get an hour or two in there. Nice. Um, so that's my reading system. But what is your reading system? Have a system. Some people, for some people, it's Audible. You know, for some people, it's like they convert their subway time or their commuting time to Audible. Whatever. But what is your system to getting more books into your life? And, and by the way, slash support your local bookstore because they're the cultural soul of, of, of our communities. I really do feel that way. I agree. And, and the number three kind of takeaway is it's an interesting balance we talked about between kind of starting and quitting. But I would say this, which is decide when you're starting a project, how far deep into it you'll want to go before you get a, a, a little smoke in your nose to see whether it's working or not. With 1,000 awesome things, I set it up to be 1,000, but let's be honest, I'll be very blunt. I would have quit after 100 if it wasn't working because that would have been three months of trying something and nothing ever came. But luckily, 30 into it, the blog, a blog post went viral. And there's many things like that in my life. I started this podcast, three books. I have a thousand formative books. Well, that's 33, 333 chapters. And that's going to go for every four, the next 14 years. That, this podcast is going to last me until 2031. I'm going to be 55 years old when it's done. Nice. I know in my heart though, that I will quit unless I get some signs that it's working. Right. And I don't know what those signs are yet. I just know 
but I have to put a, a line in the ground saying, you can set a long-term goal, but where is your quit point? Because that is important. Otherwise, you have too high of an opportunity cost that's preventing you from doing something else. Those are fantastic expert action steps. Thank you for revealing those to us. I love them. So listener, Neil Pasrika has written some incredible books. You need to go and read those books. If you have already read them, great. Buy 10 copies of The Book of Awesome. Buy 10 copies of The Happiness Quotient. And he's going to have more books coming on. And when he has those books on, I'll invite him back on the show so he can tell you all about them. Make sure that you buy these copies. You give them to your friends. Give them to your family members. Give them to people who you love and you care about. It's going to make their lives better. And listen, if you're a listener to this and you're in an organization, you're in a corporation, and you like the sound of Neil's message and you'd like him to bring it to your organization, contact him. Check out what what it takes to get Neil to be a speaker for you. The man's amazing. I've seen him speak. I was so impressed by him. I wanted him on my show. This guy's awesome. You need to do this. And obviously, you need to check out his podcast. Neil, I'm going to be a regular listener to your podcast. I mean, this is incredible. My favorite subject, books. Awesome. Love it. (laughs) Please, please, please do more. I'd love to talk books with you all the time, all the time. And you know what? I'm, I'm, I'm going to, if you don't mind, if I read a really good book, I'm going to send you the name of the book, especially if it's one that isn't uh, all that well-known out there. And uh, love, you to, love you to get your thoughts on it. Um, there's a Japanese writer named uh, Eiji Yoshikawa. He wrote a book about Musashi. I'm reading a book uh, he wrote called Taiko. This guy died like 40 years ago. I'll tell you, his books are amazing. Amazing. They're fiction, fictionalized stories about the greatest warrior in, in Japanese history, Miyamoto Musashi, and a fictionalized story of how J- feudal Japan uh, united under uh, the shogunate. Incredible, incredible writer. Highly, highly recommend reading his books. They're really, really a lot of fun. And um, that's what I have to say. Neil, thank you so much for being on the show. It's really an honor to have had you here. Uh, I so appreciate it. Thank you so much. It's all my pleasure. Awesome. And listener, if you're listening to this and you're a coach, you're a consultant, you're an expert, and you're thinking to yourself, can I grow my business? I've been a little bit frustrated. Can I be a thought leader? Can I become like Neil Pastrika? Can I become someone known in my business? What's it going to take for me to be able to grow my business? I've tried a bunch of things. They haven't worked out. I'm a good person. I deserve to be successful, but I'm not sure if it's going to work for me. I'm here to tell you it can work for you. You deserve for it to work for you. What you need to do is you need to jump on a call with myself or a member of my team. We do something called a breakthrough success call. We offer it absolutely free because we want to give back. We want to help you figure out how you can position yourself as the go-to expert authority in your space and use that to grow your business. And the way to do that, go to the show notes, go to eastcircleacademy.com forward slash appointment and jump on a call with myself or a member of my team. And that wraps up another episode of the podcast, The Thought Leader Revolution. To find out more about today's amazing guest, the legendary Neil Pasrika, go to thethoughtleaderrevolution.com, look into the show notes, and until next time, goodbye.